Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today is episode 177 with Merch. We're talking about Bitcoin, coin selection, and just the block space market as well. Uh, but firstly, uh, the sponsors of the show. Uh, let me just open this up. So um, firstly, Kraken, one of the world's biggest Bitcoin exchanges. They're also one of the world's longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, they offer one, some of the best liquidity available in the market. They uh, have 24-7 customer support. They've got uh, futures. Uh, they offer OTC for those of you who are interested in higher volume trades uh, over $100,000 USD. Um, and they also have Kraken Pro mobile app. So make sure you check them out. Uh, it offers a really excellent uh, user interface uh, within uh, a mobile application, so it's easy for you to buy and sell Bitcoin. Um, next up is Unchained Capital. So the website is unchained-capital.com. You can easily set up a multi-signature with a two of three wallet on their Vaults website. Um, so that's right here on unchained-capital.com. And you can also, if you need some assistance, you can chat with some of the guys like Phil Geiger, who, who will help set up and help coach you through that setup. So you can use Trezor or Ledger. It's a really easy setup. Um, also note that they've got loan products as well. So you can basically put up some Bitcoin and get USD liquidity. So without selling your Bitcoin, you can get some uh, additional liquidity there and so make sure you check them out there also on their blog they've got incredible content uh, such as parker lewis's series gradually then suddenly and they've also got some awesome open source contributions with caravan so check out my recent interview with parker and buck from the team so we talk about that there also so make sure you go and check them out next up is CoinFloor. so if you are in the uk and you uh, either are there yourself or you know people there make sure you point them towards coinfloor.co.uk. You can set up an auto-buy program and basically just buy Bitcoin without lifting a finger. They've also got an affiliate program as well. So if you are already with CoinFloor, but you haven't set up auto-buy, you can um, you set up the affiliate program and it's quite a generous program as well. So they've got a lot of um, details there. So essentially you can uh, see all the different um you know, pieces of information here on the website. But if you go to coinfloor.co.uk, you can find that there. Uh, and also, it's Bitcoin only. So you can feel more comfortable recommending to your friends to check them out. So that's coinfloor.co.uk. Next up is Swan Bitcoin. Now, I am an advisor and I hold a small equity stake with them. Uh, but if you're in the US, you absolutely have to get your auto stacking on with Swan. It's so simple. Any no-coiner could do it. You link your USD, you fund it with your bank account, and then you stack the Bitcoin, and then you automatically withdraw the Bitcoin to your cold storage. And remember, that they're not charging any withdrawal fees. They want you to follow best practices where you hold your own keys. They've got the cheapest in the US. They're crushing Coinbase's fees by up to 80% for recurring buys and Cash App's fees by up to 57%. So set and forget, just swan and chill. Uh, so go to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera to start auto-stacking. Uh, be sure to use that ref link because you'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. All right, so that that's uh, the sponsors. Let me just bring in Merch. Welcome, Merch. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, thanks for joining me, man. I am a fan. I've read uh, some of your work uh, uh, on uh, coin selection, and I know you've, you're, uh, you're the man to talk to about this topic. So, look, let's start with uh, how you got into uh, Bitcoin uh, and Bitcoin contribution and, and also just some of your work at Bitco. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I started following Bitcoin about 2011, 2012. I don't remember exactly. I, I just, um, like the third time it swam through my media stream, I, I realized, hey, this is coming up again. Uh, and I actually read the white paper and then I was like, wait, that might actually work. And um, so pretty early on, I, I found Bitcoin Stack Exchange. While like uh, Bitcoin Talk was already fairly noisy and Reddit was a mixed bag, Bitcoin Stack Exchange just answered all my questions with usually pretty high quality posts. And um, uh, I, I tried writing a few answers myself at first, but they got heavily corrected or I even deleted them because they were crap. But after a while, I, I got better at it, and now I've been doing that for almost seven years and uh, six years as a moderator. And um, about three years ago, when I finished my thesis, I, I wrote a thesis on coin selection, um, was studying computer science, and for my master's degree, I, I was looking for a topic, and I found out that there was a lab at my university that was looking into blockchain stuff. So after a few weeks of waiting, because my prospective advisor was on vacation, I, I rolled up in his office and was like, hey, I want to write about coin selection. And I, I prepared a bit of an idea. Here, Here's like a page. And he's like, okay, uh, turns around a stack of paper. I had a few ideas, but let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, so, man. And uh, I think it's really interesting because in terms of online Bitcoin discussion, you see, well, you've got like the old the old school stuff. So Bitcoin Talk was the forum. That was the main thing then. And right. then there was the Bitcoin subreddit. But mm -hmm. in terms of technical forums for discussion, you pretty much have, okay, so there's the IRC channels. You've got mm -hmm. the mailing list for discussion and right. you've pretty much got Stack Exchange, right? Because right. that's where the more technical discussion actually occurs. And so for listeners who are unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about the sort of questions and some of the things they might see on Bitcoin Stack Exchange. I mean, the, the nice thing is just when you have a single question, you can usually either find it there or just ask a single question and you'll get all the best answers for it. And other people will look over those answers and, and correct them or provide their own to to supersede a not so optimal answer. And you you end up getting this this um, big set of questions and answers that are, well, not authoritative, but uh, pretty pretty decent. And um, since since they stay present and when people vote on them, the authors get notified again, people inherently look at them again later. I, I mean, frequently I just look back at a trans at a question or answer I wrote five years ago and then are like, oh, I think I can write this a little better now and, and improve it. So we, we have this living body of, of just uh, questions and answers for the ages that probably at this point, answer most of your technical questions around Bitcoin. And compared to, to Reddit, it's just Bitcoin talk would be so noisy that uh, you would be on page five and the actual question had been answered three times already on page two, three, and four, and they start over on page five. And on Reddit, it's just, there, there's a lot of good content on Reddit, but there's also just a lot of uh, noise and Price posts and <laughs> memes. So right, it can be the blind leading the blind on Reddit sometimes. Yeah, that 
although I, I don't want to say that for a very long time, that was a very good place to, to learn about what was going on in the community. And there's definitely a bunch of people that really know their stuff. Um, but a lot of that has since moved to Twitter, which just wasn't the case, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. And so, look, let's talk a bit about your work, coin selection, uh, and, uh, you know, how you got interested in all this stuff, because you're seen as one of the experts in this area now. Uh, mm -hmm. What was your, why did you get interested in coin selection, of all things? Um, I think I I read in a, probably in a Bitcoin Stack Exchange question that somebody was asking, why why is my input set built like this? And, and uh, um why why is it spending an input that is actually not paying for itself in this transaction? And then I looked into what exactly Bitcoin Core does and found that it was fairly uh, consolidatory, wrote up the, the coin selection algorithm of Bitcoin, uh, well, probably then Bitcoin Core, and just sussed out a little bit what was happening there. And then I thought, well, Surely an, an input set should never include inputs that can't even pay for themselves. That That is just detrimental for the sender. So I I created a patch, I think that was 2014, and that would just prune such inputs from the input set when a transaction got built. And um, so I, I believe that Vladimir merged it with can't make it worse. And about three months later, it got rolled back when... Um, some other developers pointed out that the UTXO set was growing. <laughs> so um, that was my first patch to, to Bitcoin Core, and I wanted to do better. And that's how I came up with my master thesis. Okay, this is obviously more complicated, and this solution just doesn't seem satisfying. Let's see if we can do something better. That's awesome. So can we just contrast some of the different potential approaches then so i've heard of let's say the knapsack approach or the mm -hmm. random approach or the branch and bound approach or right. uh let's say electrum i think in those days had a slightly more private mode could you yeah. just spell out for us what are some of the different high level approaches that we can take with coin selection um oof. okay that's, that's a really broad question but um Generally, the, the problem is that, that coin selection is a multidimensional issue, right? You, um, when you're sending a transaction, what you actually want to do is you want to create a transaction output. That's the payload, right? Um, that's also the only part of the transaction that you actually want to create, right? If I'm sending money to you, that, that is the payload of the transaction, my one output to Stefan to pay him. All the rest is just overhead, right? So... Um, you you want to think about okay what fees am I paying to to pay Stefan what what um, does that do to the liquidity in my wallet uh, how does that impact the privacy of my wallet um, how does that yeah that's that's mostly the the ones that I would go with at that point but so the you you can do something that works fairly simply by just taking the oldest unspends or taking the largest unspend or just randomly selecting from them. And uh, you will find a solution and it'll work. But it turns out if you think a little more about it, you can do better. 
Right. Um, and so could you just outline what was the knapsack approach? Uh, I think so. That, this is a little funny because a knapsack problem um, means that you can only approach it from one side, right? How many boxes can I fit into a larger square or something, right? Um, but in Bitcoin, you can overshoot, right? You can just pick an input that is way larger and then um, uh, just pay with that and create a change output to send the rest back to yourself, right? So uh, Knapsack is related, but it's sort of a little bit of a different problem. You really have to find an input set that pays enough so it can pay for the output, can pay for the transaction input and transaction overhead altogether, and then um, you probably want to minimize either fees or set up your your manage your UTXO well or um, yeah yeah want to stay private right yeah and so I suppose there can be different things that you might be trying to optimize for right so one example yeah. might be. How do I do it to just literally just minimize the fee? I don't care about anything else. Right. I just want to minimize my fee. And right. then another one might be, what are, what are some of the different conflicting goals that might be there? Right. So this is, the funny thing is minimize the global fees over the whole course of your wallet or for this single transaction is even already two different approaches. Right. So one method that was really popular back when I wrote my thesis was to do just highest priority first or largest first. And that would always have a very small input set because you would literally take the least number of inputs that you needed to fund the transaction, right? Because you're, you're stacking the biggest ones. However, that ground the funds into dust because you would take the biggest as long as it was the biggest ever and ever again until it was so small that another unspent would be ground down. And then basically you would reduce the size of all your unspents over time until they were all tiny. And you had this huge backlog of tiny unspents, which you then later had to spend in in the future uh, for one input per piece, right? So um, that was actually fairly popular back then. And when uh, fees exploded, people that had been using that suddenly sat on a huge amount of dust and we're not well set up for for a huge congestion. Um, so a better approach was to to spend these tiny pieces over time, right? So maybe you go with oldest first, right? So you, you pick the oldest unspent and then each next oldest unspent until you have enough money. And that definitely makes sure that you cycle all the funds. But it reveals how old the oldest funds in your wallet are. It um, might not always have the smallest input set. Um, yeah, so each of these comes like with its own privacy implications and its own, own um, long-term and short-term fee implications. And uh, the, I, the thing that I realized at some point, actually, after the presenting my preliminary results at Scaling Bitcoin in Milan uh, was that if you just avoid a change output that actually helps most of these dimensions, it makes it more private because there's nothing going back to your own wallet. It makes the transaction smaller because you don't need the change output. It makes the liquidity in your wallet better because you're not sending a huge amount of change back to your wallet, which is not available for immediate transactions. 
Um, and it, it also uh, reduces the number of future unspents that you have to take care of because an unspent not created is an unspent you don't have to spend later. So you save the output now and you save the input later as well. So while the output is only 34 bytes for a regular pay to public key hash, you also save the 148 of spending it later. Right. So they, uh, so yeah, so I guess backing up, it's like your wallet has to pick which pieces of uh, Bitcoin it wants to send. And Mm -hmm. one of the, you know, so each transaction has inputs and outputs. And as you're saying there, one of the interesting ideas is to avoid the creation of a change output altogether because right. of the overall saving to both yourself uh, and potentially, you could even argue that's better for the ecosystem as well yeah. because it means less space is being used on Bitcoin's blockchain in each block. Yeah. And and the UTXO set doesn't grow from your transaction. It's a net minus one on your your input to output quota, right? Um, on the output side. Uh, so yeah, I, I once I realized that that avoiding a change output altogether was beneficial for all fees, liquidity, privacy, and your own UTXO management. That sort of became uh, the the silver bullet to to a degree, and Branch and bound is essentially just a way to systematically uh, efficiently search the whole UTXO pools combination set. As in like a UTXO pool being the UTXO of a wallet. And um, now basically it just goes like combine one with two, combine one with three, combine one with four. Oh, this is a perfect match. Let's send a transaction where I don't need to create a change up. Gotcha. And so... This branch and bound uh, was something uh, from reading a paper. I think it was initially proposed by Greg Maxwell, like many other ideas in this space. Um, Yeah, yeah. He he described something that I um, uh, I don't remember exactly when I found it, but uh, probably around the time of of going to Milan, or I think I might have described it before even, but I hadn't hadn't really implemented it. First, I was actually going with other suggestions such as trying to, to match the output amount to the, the recipient amount, as in create a change output that was the same size as the recipient amount, because that's obviously in a sort of amount that I would be sending. So maybe it'll be useful to have uh, inputs in the future that are the same size as something that I'm often sending. But that turned out to not be very efficient at all. Turns out that the frequent price changes, the fee rate changes, and also just the uh, differences in amounts sent didn't really make that as effective as I thought. So, yeah, the, I, I don't know exactly how that came together anymore. It's been almost four years at this point. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, so... I think it's also interesting just to talk about the different dynamic. Uh, so there's a few things here. So you are we're considering not just you know the here and now, but what are, what will happen when fees rise, and that's an important thing if you're managing a large wallet, particularly yeah. because. And what we mean, not just large in the sense of oh, I've got you know two thousand bitcoins in this wallet, but more like lots of pieces of Bitcoin in this wallet. Right. So yeah. why is it important to consider uh, the 
longer term implications when you've got lots of little pieces in your wallet. Yeah. Okay. So short history lesson. In 2017, we had a huge price run up from, I believe, somewhere around $2,000 in January to 20K uh, by December. And um, the price rise increased the speculation and a lot of people were sending money to exchanges or withdrawing and it just overall increased demand for transactions, uh, uh, block space. And we, in I think it was around Christmas and New Year's that the fees spiked and we saw fee rates of over 1,200 Satoshis per V-byte. So uh, if you look back in the past few weeks, we saw about 200, so six-fold that even. And um, for a lot of people, that meant that their smallest pieces of Bitcoin were completely unspendable, economically unspendable. The input cost was higher than the value of the unspends. Uh, in particular, there was one wallet that I was looking into a little bit that had over 500,000 unspends of exactly 10,000 Satoshis. And they became unspendable at, I think, 30 Satoshis per byte, if, if I remember. Because two or three multisig with non-segwit, uh, is 297 bytes. So I think 30 works out about. So from 30 Satoshis per byte up to 1,200, they literally just could not access any of those funds. And they, they were operating on a few hundred unspents for, for almost a month, even though they had over half a million unspents in their wallet. And uh, this is an extreme example, of course, but a lot of larger enterprises get more deposits than than they do withdrawals. And they I, I've seen ratios of like 20 to one or so. They really have to consider how they will ever combine all those tiny pieces of Bitcoin into two larger chunks. Because uh, when the fees go to 200, you don't want to send a transaction with over a hundred inputs in order to, to pay a single withdrawal, right? You'll, you'll be paying on the hundreds of dollars for for a withdrawal, right? So um, you you need to have enough UTXOs that you can process a lot of transactions, even if there's maybe not a block for a whole hour. But you don't want to have so many that you are forced to make huge transactions and to to um, yeah spend spend a bunch of dust. In one go. Great. And let's also consider the dynamic as well. So obviously in December 2017, it was crazy FOMO. It was, you know, and who knows, we may well see that come again in another, in a year or whatever, right? But it's also an interesting dynamic right now. And you have been commenting on this right now because we just went through the halving and we haven't fully, I mean, it takes a couple of difficulty adjustments for the block. Uh, so the on average, uh, yes, it's every 10 minutes, but in practice, it's been a bit longer because we're still waiting for the difficulty adjustment. Now that has caused, uh, let me summarize this. So basically that has caused, because we're seeing slower blocks, we're trying to see more more transactions trying to get stuffed into each one, which is also in turn pushing up the cost right now temporarily. But it's kind of giving us a glimpse of what's to come uh, if we're not efficient in our wallet management in the space, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, the... The having was now uh, two weeks ago, I think, right? 
16 days. And um, the, well, the, the reward dropped by almost half and uh, the block subsidy half, but the fees stay the same roughly, uh, assuming same throughput. Um, but uh, the hash rate then dropped by somewhere between 20 and 30% or so. And uh, in the first difficulty adjustment, we only saw a reduction of 6%, I think. So we're still down by about 20% compared to to our expected 10-minute block. It means one block every 12 and a half minutes. So even if you consider that the transaction demand was the same, and we, we had about, whatever, 90% full blocks for the past few months, which tends to be just fine because it clears every night. Or if it doesn't clear over a night, it definitely clears on the weekend. But suddenly, if there's a, a reduction of 20% of the block space, you have 90% of the uh, full blocks for 80% of the block space. And now this this excess just keeps stacking up. And we saw the mempool rise to a point where, where uh, the default mempool size on nodes would cause the lowest fee transactions to get dropped by the nodes. We, we exceeded the default mempool size. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've been looking at this a lot lately, uh, posting some Twitter updates, uh, commenting a little bit on it. Um, we it, It's just fascinating because every time a block is found, you don't know how long it'll take for the next block to come around. It might take an hour, it might take 10 seconds, and sure, there's probability, but uh, as long as no block is found, the expected time for the next block is always 10 minutes. So it's a little boggling, but uh, Peter has a, a great thread on Twitter explaining. Um, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> no, that's totally cool. That's totally cool. So um, look, uh, I think... Uh, actually, we've got a question here from Vake, so let me just pop that up on screen. So the question from Vake is, how do we balance privacy versus reducing transaction fees when choosing whether or not to consolidate UTXOs? Now, I guess probably the answer there is more just like, what's your priority? Are you, are you trying to optimize for privacy or are you trying to optimize for fees? How would you answer that question? Right. It totally depends on your trade-offs. And that's also why there's not one-size-fits-all coin selection for everyone and not one-size-fits-all UTXO management for everyone. Because unfortunately, if we're honest, a lot of the bigger businesses, they're KYC'd already. They they talk to governments because when they get funds that are from certain sources, they might need to reveal information about them and so forth. So they don't care that much if somebody can track... Uh, whether a withdrawal is highly likely to be from exchange A, right? So for for a business that does thousands of payments per day, it it just is a little bit of a different question. If for for a retail user um, that just has a tiny amount of transactions, maybe a few per month or a few per week, they they can probably afford to look at their UTXO said and are like, okay, this piece I got from that transaction, this piece I got from that transaction, I'll, I'll, I'll use uh, exactly these inputs to keep funds separate or something, like use coin control. Or uh, for some, 
I mean, it, it just totally depends on what what's important to you and whether you're you're talking about saving ten thousand dollars per day by doing consolidations or just yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. I think that's a fair way to answer it. And I think if you are an individual uh, retail hodler kind of guy and you're more concerned about privacy, you might be using, for example, the Samurai Wallet Stonewall. And what that does is it includes additional inputs into the transaction, which as uh, I'm sure you know, Merch, but just for listeners, the typical, the size of a transaction is very much based on how many inputs you are including into that transaction. And uh, as you... In, as you you know scale that up, that massively increases your cost. But for some people, that's worthwhile because we want the privacy. But for other cases, let's say you know your BitGo managing a large wallet, then it, that's not really cost effective, or may not even be you know, practical. Might not even be possible uh, based on the size of those wallets. Um, it might be actually interesting. You know what? We might as well pull it up on screen um, just because I've got it here anyway. Uh, so here. So we can see here, Merch, uh, you recently put out this table. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about um, some of these input and output sizes? Um, yeah, so I, I, I free, frequently get into discussions about transactions and transaction sizes and or what people should do and whether they should batch or not. And I, I kept needing to look up just how big exactly transaction inputs and outputs were. And then I finally just made this table to to have it handy for myself. So it has been pointed out to me by now that I should have just put the um, exact values instead of rounding up to make it virtual sizes. Um, so it, it's slightly inaccurate overestimating costs. But um, the main point that you can see here is at, at BitGo, we use two or three multisig, right? The, the benefits of multisig are, are clearly there. Uh, being able to to have a second check on on whether something should go through or not, and putting into other mechanisms to to control your funds is just super helpful uh, when you get attacked or something. And uh, that comes at a cost, though, right? Putting a multi-sig input uh, for non-segwit is literally twice as big. Right, 296 would be exactly the double of 148. And <clears throat> by by putting that into a wrapped SegWit uh, input instead, uh, people were able to save over 50% of the input cost on every single input, right? So we rolled out uh, wrapped SegWit in, I think it was October or November 2017, just before the biggest uh, congestion. And we urged people to just start giving out these wrapped SegWit addresses because they were perfectly forward compatible, and they could uh, people could just send to them. Anybody that could send to pay to Scriptash could send to wrapped SegWit addresses. But the the our user could then spend 140 virtual bytes instead of 297 bytes, right? And that got even better with native SegWit, but native SegWit is not forward compatible. Um, wallets need to support bash 32 address format in order to be able to send to that. So that has been slow in the adoption. I, I like recommending it for change addresses immediately because that's when users send to themselves. So what you can see in this table anyway is that um, 
using a more efficient address format can have very significant cost savings for you. Switching from non-SegWit to SegWit, either for single-sig or multi-sig, is um, a reduction of, well, in multi-sig, 50%. In single-sig, I, I could uh, guess 40%, roughly. Um, <clears throat> and native SegWit is even cheaper. And the thing that, that people were a little excited here about was that Taproot is on this table too, which of course has been talked about for, what is it now, two years or so? But it's still a little undetermined when we will actually be able to use it. But um, the trade-offs get, get even more exciting for Taproot right here. If you think about it, um, the cost of the the user is when they create the input, right? So they pay the input cost, the 58 vbytes for a taproot output here, uh, versus 68 for, for a native SegWit single sig or 105 for two or three multi-sig. So very clearly, lots of savings. But the, the cost increase is on the side of the sender. So if I'm the recipient and I hand you a taproot address, I'm actually distributing some of the cost that the total uh, transaction flow will have to the sender. And it, it makes incentives uh, more compatible. What you want is that inputs, um, <clears throat> sorry, creating outputs should be more expensive because that's something that increases the global cost of nodes to run, right? And spending inputs should be cheaper because it makes it easier to reduce the UTXO set. So this, this is globally great. This is generally, uh, the only case here that is cheaper is native SegWit single sig has 99 bytes versus Taproot having 101 vbytes. So very insignificant total size increase, but in all other cases, Taproot will be the cheapest way of sending Bitcoin. And even for the single SIG case, since some of the cost goes to the sender and it is very much in the uh, great for the recipient to give out taproot addresses. Awesome. So uh, can you just outline a little bit why it matters the size of the overall UTXO set? Why is that important? Why do we care about that? Oh yeah, good point. Um, <clears throat> so, Every single full node keeps track of all pieces of Bitcoin that float about. Uh, these are called the unspent transaction outputs, or UTXO, which we've mentioned frequently in this podcast so far. Uh, and this is the only way to know whether you actually got paid. You have to know every single piece of Bitcoin and have to be sure that it has not been spent before and is available for spending and has been signed properly when somebody sends you funds. So, um, if every full node has to keep track of every single piece of Bitcoin, you kind of don't want this to balloon. And it's been growing pretty rapidly. Uh, we are at about 64 million, I believe. And um, that is, uh, a, we had a recent new all-time high. The previous all-time high was, I believe, in January 2018, just after the biggest congestion. And uh, now we've grown again to the same size. So um, it's just a cost of operating a node. And if it goes to a very large size, it'll make it prohibitive for people to run their own nodes at home. 
Yeah. And so uh, I guess what you were also getting that there is also around what is the uh, incentive um, for people, uh, whether they are sending or receiving Bitcoins, what's their incentive, whether they will be on net creating new inputs or creating new uh, outputs, or will they be destroying uh, the, those pieces, thus reducing the cost to the overall ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, the number of inputs and outputs will eventually um, match because over the life cycle of Bitcoin, every output will have to be spent as an input eventually. Uh, you can argue, of course, well, actually, no, that's even true for Coinbase outputs. So um, in the end, if you want to take your funds out, everybody is a net zero, right? But um, you might want to have more outputs to increase your privacy because having all of your funds in a single output is just terrible because when you pay somebody, they know exactly how much money you had in total. Um, you might not want to have too many, though, because as we discussed earlier already, it'll increase your cost of operating your transaction uh, creation. So as more users stream into Bitcoin in general, I think it's natural that the set will grow. And our computational resources do too. And certainly there is also some unspent for which the private keys were lost that are unspendable now that'll stick around forever. But we, we just want to design the incentives in a way that people don't arbitrarily balloon the set and make it more expensive and prohibitive for, for the general user. Gotcha. Um, and in terms of, uh, sorry, this one, um, here, we've got a question here. We might put that one up. So what is the most compatible address format for the future of BTC? Uh, I guess we first have to talk about what compatible means. So the the BIP for um, Taproot actually specifies that, um, or I, I, I guess I think that must have been in the BIP uh, for Bash 32. It specified that you should not prevent sending to higher versions of SegWit. Uh, you might remember that the SegWit script came out with version zero when um, SegWit was introduced and Taproot now introduces version one of script. And um, so hopefully a lot of wallets that can now send to native SegWit addresses will just be able to send to, to ta- pay to Taproot outputs, or sorry, create pay to Taproot outputs by sending to Bash32 addresses there as well. But back when, when it was introduced first, um, Bitcoin Core actually wouldn't allow uh, transactions to be broadcast if the version of the, the witness script was was unknown. So I think a lot of uh, uh, one of my friends advised me that probably the a lot of wallets would would have the version check. So we might be in a similar situation as before native SegWit rolled out where old wallets would just not be able to send to, to new addresses. So that's what's been delaying the, the rollout of native SegWit addresses because not every wallet can send it. So if you just, without context, put a native SegWit address in front of your end user, they might be running on an ancient Android wallet on their phone and or whatever, and it, it just can't send to that at all. So you need 
you need to have a backup, a fallback where, where they can get a page to script hash address or wrap segwit address and so forth. And I think we might see something similar with native segwit. So while I would love for everybody to start using taproot addresses, the moment that it comes out, it'll just take a while until people can send to it. And well, you might be familiar with whensegwit.com or what the website was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That site is what one and a half, two years old now, and we still have a very small number of native segwit use. Of course, yeah. I'll see if I can find that one. So the most future proof at this point probably is still wrapped segwit, but um, you should. You should move to showing people native SegWit addresses with a fallback that uh, gives them a wrapped SegWit. <laughs> yeah, so here's the when SegWit website. But um, so I think it's also so. Let's say we get Taproot, like optimistically speaking, maybe early or mid next year in 2021. I guess um, it will still take time for wallets to implement it and it will take time for people to you know get comfortable with using it as well because it might be a little bit of work for that right uh, i think actually for any wallets that can already send to native segwit it will be fairly easy they just have to allow sending to ver version one witness scripts that's it native segwit addresses are the same they are also formatted in bash 32 the standard covers everything including taproot so as long as they just want to send to it, they literally just have to get rid of the version check. For wallets that can't send to native SegWit yet, well, <laughs> maybe maybe it's time, right? Yep, yep. Um, and so uh, I guess bringing you back to what we were talking about, the block space market dynamics, right? So uh, I think in, in, in years gone by, people referred to it as a fee market, but perhaps it's more precise to call it a block space market, right? because that's really what you're bidding on space within mm -hmm. inside that block. Exactly. Um, um, and so maybe it'd be good to just talk about the dynamic there around we believe eventually, more, as more and more people come into Bitcoin, eventually all the blocks will just fill up and that um, then people will sort of have this dynamic of they might continually put in low priority transactions, which might be their consolidations, um, just put them through at, you know, one Satoshi per byte, and then just kind of wait until they eventually clear through. Um, people might be concerned that, oh, could, um, could it get lost, right? Like, and then they would now need to go and have some kind of rebroadcast mechanism. Right. Um, so a transaction cannot really get lost. Uh, they can... Uh, so maybe one step back. Each full node maintains its own mempool. The mempool being just um, the current queue for getting included in a block and uh, the, the body of unconfirmed transactions, payment um, payments that have not been executed yet. And... Um, while some users or most users probably use the default value of 300 megabyte in Bitcoin Core, uh, you can just set it to five gigabytes if you want and keep everything that ever 
floated about the mempool. And once the mempool dips enough, you just resubmit the stuff back to to the other network participants. So the other thing is the transaction will never get invalid, right? It's just literally, I spent these pieces of Bitcoin here as a signature. This is my payment instruction to the network. And it stays valid indefinitely until one of those inputs gets consumed otherwise. So yes, nodes will drop by default a transaction that has been in their mempool for 14 days and then probably won't re-accept it for a while. But um, other than that, the, the sender himself, they can keep it forever. It'll stay valid forever, but they might actually want to forget it on purpose in order to send a new version of it. Or my big hope is that in the long run, people actually roll out replace by fee more broadly because it, it would just... Uh, solve a lot of other problems around fee estimation that make it really difficult because it's a it's a one shot will this be enough and here here's my submission and then you wait uh, whereas with rbf you you can make a decent guess and then just up it a little bit if it sticks around too long without getting confirmed right and it may also be this dynamic where currently the fee estimation across the different across the ecosystem, right? Whether you are an exchange or an individual with a wallet or whatever, and depending on your time preference for that transaction, right? So if you're like, I I must get into the next block, well then obviously you're going to pay a very high fee. If you're willing to wait, say six hours or one day, then obviously you'll set a lower fee. Uh, and so uh, the point I guess you're getting at there is that if more people are capable of using RBF replaced by fee they would then start with the sort of lowball the fee or mid mid range the fee and then if you still don't get through then uh bump the fee higher yeah i think that that a lot of people that don't necessarily to be honest i i think that most people that try to be in the next or second next block completely overestimate their time preference but um for most people, they, they can probably save 80 to 90% by being a little more patient. For for many users, like whatever, if I, if I withdraw from an exchange, I want to see that they sent the money to me, but I don't urgently need it. If I get it sometime this week, I'm fine with that, right? So I'm, I'm happy if they, if they send it at a lower fee rate, but given that they're probably batching, They'll all send. They'll send all of their outputs at a single transaction, uh, in a single transaction with the same fee rate. So I don't really have a say in in how high the priority is, and that that's fine. Batching is is efficient in itself. But uh, for everybody else, yeah, just just pay a three hundred block target fee, and and then just come back in three days and see if it's still floating around, and then bump it a little bit. Yeah. And I think the other dynamic is also in 2017, towards the end of 2017, there were a lot of newcomers and they weren't necessarily familiar with this idea of, oh, the block space and the dynamic of the fees. You know, and so you could argue that the exchanges and some of these service providers know that their users are not comfortable with that. And so that's why they were just trying yeah, to pay definitely. to get into the next block because yeah. I, I don't have time to educate my customer. I just want to get into the next block. Sure. 
definitely. Yeah, and uh, so there there will be a multi-tiered market there. There will be the thraf on top that needs to be in the next block or next two blocks, and they'll be fine if it takes three to five blocks occasionally if there's a lot. But they 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 and then there'll be other people that might go, I don't know, five satoshis per byte that don't, just don't want to get mixed into consolidations, but otherwise they they're happy to wait a bit for the confirmation and then at the min relay transaction fee you'll you'll get the very low time preference hey just take those 200 inputs and and give me a single piece back uh, consolidation transactions that don't have an external recipient so it's just somebody sending to themselves and it's just between them and themselves to how long they're happy to wait and usually that means more or less indefinitely. But you, you're bringing up a point that I honestly don't have a good answer for, which is um, the block space supply is inelastic. And when there's more transactions being created than uh, can get confirmed, eventually it'll overflow. And sure, at first that, that'll drive adoption of more efficient formats and second layer protocols, maybe, maybe side chains and things like that. But uh, eventually, either those second layer markets and, and the main chain get into an equilibrium when the main chain costs are too high, uh, transaction volume flows off to, to the second layer, or vice versa, if it's super cheap to, to transact on the main chain, um, the overhead of creating lightning channels or locking up funds in a side chain or something like that will be enough friction to move stuff back to the main chain, right? So either there's going to be an equilibrium there, or at some point we actually just exceed the capacity of the main chain. And then I think we'll, we'll have to have another discussion in the network what exactly we want to achieve. And, and, it's it's difficult to to argue about complex systems and all that, but yeah, I'm, I mean, it. I I just don't know how in the long run this whole thing will evolve, and I'm, yeah, I'm and not completely uh, blind to, well, the inelastic block supply. Right, and let me just throw a few points here as well. So, for some people, let's say you are a trader and you're moving money across exchanges and. Uh, obviously, liquid makes a lot of sense in that scenario, but some of these people justifiably have a high time preference because for them, they would otherwise be paying like seventy or eighty dollars for a, to wire some money around and waiting days of time anyway. And so for them, they might well be happy to pay thirty, forty dollars as a Bitcoin transaction fee. And in this case, if they are on an exchange, then the exchange is kind of paying that fee on their behalf because the exchange wants you know their volume. Uh, that the exchange makes a lot of money out of, right? So that's one point. Um, another point is also, again, this is kind of zooming out more economic, but if you look at someone like, say, Nick Zabo, right? So he speaks about this idea of you know, medium of wealth transfer. And so those people might well be comfortable paying $40, $50 fee because their alternative is to get gold and spend millions of dollars moving gold around the world. And so in that sense, maybe it really does make sense for them to pay that high a fee because it's still cheaper for them, broadly considered, uh, to pay that forty or fifty dollar Bitcoin fee in the sure. in the extreme example, right? Right. Um, 
I mean, there's there's other things to consider there. So, for example, for traders that want to um, make uh, use arbitrage opportunities and make money, uh, for them it really has to be fast. Of course, they want to be in the next block. But for them, Liquid and Lightning are both much faster as well, right? So once there is sufficiently uh, large Lightning channels and a good infrastructure between uh, enterprises, they they should use Lightning because then they have the funds instantly on the other exchange. In fact, I think a lot of OTC and, and large exchanges have agreements with their largest traders to accept their, their transactions unconfirmed because they've had a long relationship and, and just solved the problem that way. But it is very specific between a service provider and a, a specific individual that they trust each other to a level or might even have a deposit uh, collateral or something, right? So um, even for these people, it might make sense to, to move to a second layer because the trade-offs uh, benefit them. But inherently, the, the trade-off is different here, right? On Lightning, you pay for, for amount sent because you're using the liquidity of other participants' Lightning's, Lightning channels to forward funds. So you're, you're paying for the amount transferred. Whereas on-chain, inherently a large payment will be capable of paying more because you're paying per data and not relative to the amount. So if you're sending a million dollars in a single Bitcoin input, uh, single input transaction, you, you don't mind if it's 40 bucks, but if you're sending 40 bucks, you do. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it just comes down to you know, selecting the right tool for the job, right? So I think the some of the discussions around using Lightning for large amounts, it might be difficult because you then it's a question of having the liquidity in the right, you know, who's got the balance on the right side. And and then as soon as you start routing multi-hop in that scenario, then maybe Liquid just makes a lot more sense. And so I think for these kind of high value between quasi semi-trusted parties, if you're large exchanges or OTC, I think liquid probably makes the most sense in that scenario. And that will kind of take a lot of the, those transactions off Bitcoin's blockchain and put them into liquid. Um, whereas, say, the small and maybe some medium transfer stuff, maybe that makes sense on Lightning if you're doing just, you just want to be able to quickly transact. I mean, multipath will help a little bit with bigger transfers as well. Uh, but to be honest, it's taking a little longer than I expected. Um, we had our own project on at BitGo to to work on Lightning, and it's gotten delayed. And I I think it is. I I love that it was working out of the box. It's a simple idea growing to be a more complex e ecosystem, which, in my opinion, is the only way how you can build a complex system is by starting with a kernel that is really simple. Um, and but. Yeah, Lightning will, will take a little more time, and then it might even have a little bit of a chicken-egg problem. You you need some big players that provide a lot of liquidity in the network or a sufficient number of participants before it will become attractive to for, for um, payment providers or merchants to implement um, receiving Lightning. And on the other hand, it 
while there is no merchants there, it's not that attractive for a user to maintain a lightning channel and so forth. So you get a little bit of a catch-22. But I, I, I do see it coming eventually. It'll just take a little longer than I thought. And to be honest, uh, Liquid is a little more difficult to not, not as transparent. So <laughs> I, I think you can see how much money in general is in, sorry, how much Bitcoin is in Liquid in general because you can, I think they use what, 12 or 15 multisig or something fairly um, recognizable. But yes, there is a way to see um, how many liquid Bitcoins there are. I think even on um, Clark Moody's dashboard, it's here as well. So you can see here liquid peg-in capacity and peg-in value. You can see there. So that's uh, that. There you go. Yeah. So, um, but other than that, once the money, <laughs> once the Bitcoin is in there, it is just a lot more private. And especially for really, really large payments, that again might become more uh, interesting. The, the anonymity set for mid-sized payments on-chain is fairly decent right now. But for, I mean, just, just look at that one spend of block 3,600 and something, and everybody is talking for two days about it, right? Right, so the anonymity uh, cost, if you will. But, uh, you know, maybe for those people, they don't care. Like, it's not that uh, important for them. Um, yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other question I think is also really interesting is around the incentive, right? So some, depending on who you are, you may not care about like, I mean, if you're an exchange, you're making all this money. Like if you think back to 2017 days, BitPay and whoever else, like you might, it might not matter that much to you that you're not being chain efficient because you just, you just want to make money out of your customers. So you can just push the cost onto them. And it, there's an interesting dynamic there around if you view it like a commons, right? Is it a tragedy of the commons? Because those people who put in the engineering effort and the time, obviously people like you care about it. Obviously I'm interested in that because, you know, I'm just interested in it. But there are many people who use Bitcoin who for want of it, you know, they just don't care, right? It doesn't matter to them. Um, they just want to use it. Um, so do you, do you think that represents any kind of issue for Bitcoin or is it more just like, look, over time, people will just naturally get driven towards using the more efficient ways. They'll get driven towards using Taproot. They'll get driven towards using Liquid and Lightning and batching and all these techniques. Yeah, I mean, that sort of touches an interesting subject. Uh, we're happy because Bitcoin is a censorship-resistant money. That inherently means that we have no say in the transactions other people create. So for me, it's good to create a smaller transaction because I save money for myself. But it also benefits everybody else because it reduces my uh, block space footprint and makes room for other people's transactions, right? So um, in, in the end, the customers of those services pay for those transactions. And when the fees are high enough, the... Uh, the exchange that implements the more efficient um, transactions will have a lower cost and will be able to offer their service cheaper. So in the end, bad behavior gets driven out. But until then, I'm afraid they can spend as much as they want. And if they still don't see why they should have SegWit in 2020, then that's 
I mean, uh, we we were looking at so the the men that stare at the mempool or people that stare at the mempool were discussing two of these cases in the past weeks. One is uh, the uh, Laurent, I think, called it one of one, crazy one of one. <laughs> yeah, I, I just saw that today, actually. Um, so I was looking into whether that was the same entity that I had looked into two weeks ago, and that was a wallet that was um, consolidating inputs at the same cost as they were sending. They had hard-coded a single fee rate at like 72 Satoshis per byte. Oh, I think. Uh, <laughs> a high fee rate. And uh, they were consolidating at the same fee rate as well. So um, I, it's just hard to watch. And and this crazy 101, they, they were consolidating at over 100 Satoshis per byte. And I think Laurent or so wrote that 720,000 UTXOs in this period where we had congestion already, they they added another 104 Bitcoin worth of fees by, by consolidating at highest fee rates. Well, I guess um, the miners are happy. <laughs> yeah, sure, the miners are happy. And to be honest, I, probably somebody is going to spin a conspiracy theory around that, that somebody just had money to burn in order to make Bitcoin look bad. But in the end, we don't have a say. Everybody can create their own transactions. If they want to pay too much, well, we as a as if um, Hydra can outspend them. Everybody has to spend a little more and they'll get in. And whoever is flooding the network with consolidations at 100 Satoshis per byte, well, they're paying a lot because they're a single entity that is paying for all these uh, transactions. So, Dude, in one way, it could be seen like they're helping pay for the security of the network, right? Because they're paying the miners, basically, and the miners are who secure Bitcoin. So, I mean, it's, you know, I think, I guess, the con the converse, right? So let's imagine they just put it all through at one set per byte. Then we would have had this huge... Now, uh, I guess the impact to the users who are transacting, they could have put through at lower fees, right? Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the I mean, impacts there. just... If you've been watching the mempool in the past weeks, you you have seen there was a 40, 50 megabyte uh, one to two Satoshi band that's been growing. Somebody's adding like a big, like about a megabyte or so uh, at a certain hour every day. You see this little tick where where another bunch of transactions get added. And that's just somebody that has a regular consolidation job, I think, that is adding to the backlog. And they're just saying, well, this will eventually be a single piece of Bitcoin, and that's great for my wallet. But I don't need it now. And yeah, so I guess it's not super efficient for the bandwidth of all the nodes if you keep adding transactions that won't confirm in anytime soon. But then on the other hand, it doesn't matter either. If you don't need the funds soon, you can add, you might as well add them to the backlog of the network and eventually get them confirmed. I, I think optimally you, you have a limit on how much you have in the backlog and you don't throw in, say, more than one megabyte of your own consolidations at one time. But it really doesn't matter. If, if the mempool overflows for a node, it'll just kick out the lowest... And then eventually they'll come back when they, they're getting close to getting confirmed. Yep. And so in that case where, let's say, 
there's a lot of low fee transactions such that they go above the default Bitcoin full nodes mempool size of, uh, I think you mentioned it was 300 megabytes. Mm. Are, the, are, are those users who their transaction got kicked out into the bottom end of that, are they now reliant on people who have manually set uh, their node to take more than 300 megabytes? Uh, I guess I guess it's that, or they have to re- find a way to rebroadcast. I mean, eventually, once the mempool drops lower, uh, a wallet will just rebroadcast its transaction. If the wallet is offline and uh, doesn't itself broadcast the transaction again, yes, they would be reliant on some other node operator that has a larger mempool set in their node, but. At that point, when when you have over 100 megabytes worth of transactions ahead of you, you might want to just resend or send later again. Um, it, it actually adds options to you because most nodes still operate on a first seen principle. They will not accept a double spend. So if you if you have a transaction that's stuck at one Satoshi per byte, you might actually be happy if it gets dropped from the network so you can send a different one, right? Uh, and just why I said 100 megabyte of transactions ahead of you, the 300 megabyte is actually the memory use of the full node and that's platform dependent and it's for the deserialized transaction. So the unpacked transaction with all the information about the I- input transactions and so forth. And uh, it's not the serialized transaction volume. So while we saw about 110 or so mega virtual bytes of transactions waiting, that exceeded the 300 megabyte mempool default limit. Yep. Um, also, just around uh, RBF and RBF signaling. So that's one of those things where it's it's probably growing a bit over time, right? So as I look uh, now on Clark Moody's dashboard, I think it's saying about 18% of transactions are signaling RBF. Uh, what's your view? You, you're, you're essentially saying you want to see more people signaling that um, and that would essentially help the ecosystem sort of plan its transactions a little better. Um, so the the problem is with currently mostly deployed uh, fee estimation that you have the single shot. And then you don't know if there's actually going to be a block in the next 10 minutes or if it's going to be 30 minutes. And there's going to be 30 mo- minutes worth of transactions added with which you'll be competing with or or whatever, right? So RBF makes this from, from a single shot to something that you can readjust later. Uh, so it's pointed out, of course, that that is a bit of a privacy detriment because you reveal um, that which of those outputs probably was the change output because the recipient outputs you will recreate in another transaction that you replace your original transaction with. Um, but then, okay, sure. So people have lots of ways how to tell what a change output is already. If you use CPFP, the, the change output is the one that you use to bump the transaction unless a recipient bumped it. Um, but most wallets will not spend foreign outputs uh, if they're unconfirmed. So if you're spending an unconfirmed output, that is a strong indicator that you send it to yourself. Um, 
heuristics are pretty. There, there's a bunch of heuristics that make it fairly obvious uh, what what the change output is, like unnecessary input heuristic. If if inputs were not needed, if the uh, I think it's all usually the smaller output, then uh, the smaller output is the change output, right? And uh, if you're sending to single sig addresses and there's a single multisig output but your your inputs are all multisig well it's fairly obvious the multisig output is the change output so especially for larger services there there often already is information on what the change output is so especially for them rbf makes a lot of sense and rbf is actually has a smaller on-chain footprint with cpfp you have to add a second transaction in order to bump the first sure you can add additional recipient outputs in the second transaction. But now you you have these new recipients dependent on your earlier transaction. And if both these transactions are delayed, uh, you'll, you'll start creating a chain. And once you get 25 of those, or uh, more than 101 kilo virtual byte of transaction data, you're just not going to be able to submit another transaction. And then you're really stuck. So um, RBF makes that easier because you're not chaining stuff together. You're actually replacing it with a better transaction for roughly the same block space. Um, the big advantage of CPFP, of course, is that the recipient can also use it. Yeah. yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. And I think uh, the other part to that is uh, just around the heuristics and so on that people are applying to try and understand oh, who's doing what on the chain and so on. Um, using multisig is quite distinguishable and you can sort of see, oh, this is this is a spend of a two of three um, or you can, I guess you can infer um, based on the uh, transaction uh, what kind of spend it was. And if there's, you know, two public, uh, two keys uh, signatures, then that just is another... Uh, heuristic and so depending on who you are and what your use case is that will change how you're thinking about okay well if i want to be, be private then i would have to not use multi-sig and just do everything on single sig uh to not give off that um fingerprint right yeah or well once we get taproot um the the big hope for taproot is that a lot of people will be making use of the Default spending path, right? Um, the so Taproot has two ways of spending. One is by revealing the the tree and paying the script or satisfying the script in one of the leaves. That's the the script path. And the key path is just having all of the participants in some way create a single public key and spend it, just like that as a pay to pub key with Schnorr. And pay to pub key, sorry, yeah, pay to pub key is then the same for everyone. Whether it's multi-sig, whether it's a lightning channel, it all looks like a single sig pay to taproot input. And it'll actually make the anonymity set a lot bigger. It'll make the block space a lot smaller. Um, so at that point, I think some of those dynamics might change a little bit. But 
fresh we have to get it right <laughs> yeah right yeah and i think that's really interesting stuff and listeners who if you're unfamiliar with with that go and check out my earlier episode with aj towns we spoke about that and uh we uh, we, we talk a little bit about the key base key based uh the key pathway and then the script pathway and so as you're saying the key pathway there is the one that would be more indistinguishable and that's what uh i think peter wooler terms it as uh, policy privacy um, so it's that idea that you don't necessarily know uh, what was the uh, underlying um, policy or kind of restriction or encumbrance that was kind of placed on that UTXO, that piece of Bitcoin, right? It's basically similar to the idea behind Lightning. As long as we all agree, we continue to use the most efficient medium, which in Lightning's case is on-channel. Uh, payment channel and in uh, pay to taproot is the key path so we we craft a single signature that spends the funds as one of the per- people could have enforced in the first place but if if it falls apart or people disagree or don't want to help out each other or are offline they can fall back and enforce what they are allowed to do by revealing all the options they have in the script uh, in the script path in the tree and revealing that spending more uh, input size but enforcing their will and enlightening the equivalent would be to take the htlc to the blockchain to enforce the the channel contract right Fantastic. Uh, so look, uh, let's just see if there are any other questions from the chat. So guys in the chat, just uh, put your questions if you've got any for merch. Um, and just while we're, I guess, waiting, do you have any thoughts around uh, the you know people getting onto Liquid, let's say? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you see that happening over the next year or two? And potentially that helps alleviate some of the pressure in terms of this you know well if we're speculating that there's a coming bull run uh, and there'll be a lot of people do, do, you, do you see that dynamic happening uh i don't know i i think i don't have a very well informed opinion on liquid i roughly know how it works but i um, i've not been keeping track of it too much so i, I don't think i can comment on that but yeah. what i think Definitely will happen is if fees generally go up, it it just incentivizes people to be more cost efficient and that'll drive adoption of native SegWit, perhaps Taproot when it's there. It'll um, make Lightning Network more attractive. It'll also make Liquid more attractive. And I think as we already have discussed, Liquid and Lightning and Mainchain, they all have different trade-offs, uh, cost-wise, privacy-wise, functionality-wise, and um, people will use whatever works for them and has the right trade-offs for their use case. So if costs on-chain go up, that'll that'll drive use, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way to summarize it. So, uh, Merch, have you got any uh, closing thoughts for us? Otherwise, make sure you let the listeners know where they can find you online. Oh, um, well, be sure that you consolidate your stuff before the next bull run, because uh, especially if you're running an enterprise wallet, you'll save a lot of money if you do, and a lot of heartache. Uh, use batching. Batching will save you a lot of money. and. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at 
Merchandamus. And uh, yeah, if you ask us a question on Stack Exchange, I'll probably edit or answer it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for joining. I found it very educational and I'm sure my listeners uh, found it very educational also. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. All right, listeners. So make sure you find uh, my show at stefanlevera.com and press like and subscribe if you enjoyed it. That's it from us. See you guys in the Citadels.